Stanford. Welcome to Henry George Program. I'm Mark Molino. This is a show where we talk about economics, housing, land, and the political process. We have on the show today, Max Kapczynski of Palo Alto Forward is on again. We are talking about recent events in Palo Alto and beyond. Let's just get into it. Welcome, Max. Yeah. Hello, Mark. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. Uh, so, we were both this week, uh, we ran into each other at the Palo Alto City Council Chambers. Uh, I'm speaking today is the 14th of, of April, 2018. This was last Monday. And uh, they were having a, uh, a, a a big action that took up all night, 40, 45 speakers or so, always a sign of, a, of something that people care yeah. about, uh, talking about an affordable housing overlay zone. And I think the idea we're going to talk about in the show is kind of to both talk about the specifics of this action and kind of talk about the big picture, what this means for affordable housing in the Bay Area and beyond. Uh, because, you know, it's very easy to hear all these things about just a million little acronyms and all these different you know features and policy platforms you never heard of and get very overwhelmed but i think there's a big picture idea that's worth diving into yeah yeah and um let's just say the the measure passed which was great it yeah. passed after many hours of deliberation yeah, so let's give it the one minute summary before we get into things yeah one minute summary is this is a zone that is basically going to say if within the zone which is within transit if you build 100% affordable, which is basically you're selling it at below market rates for, uh, they were arguing between 60% uh, of area median income or up to 120% area median income. But how did it finally end on that? I, I think that they passed the original overlay without modifications, like without removing the 120%, but I could be wrong. Okay, yeah. I'd have to look that up to make sure. I mean, it's it's an important distinction, but I feel there's a lot of different things being argued, and it's it's interesting to know that yeah, it's it was kind of could have gone either way, certainly. Yeah, because the um, this affordable housing zoning overlay had been presented to the Planning and Transportation Committee about a month ago, and they rejected it, hmm. and have in the meantime been proposing some changes to it, um, like for example, removing the. Um, 60 to 120% area median income bracket, making that ineligible for some of the benefits that would be part of um, part of the affordable housing zoning overlay. Um, some other things like Palo Alto's retail exemption, the Planning and Transportation Committee wanted to keep that instead of having affordable housing be exempt from it. But the um, Planning and Transportation Committee's changes were, I believe, on the whole, rejected, and the original overlay um Accepted is how I understand it. So, so the big story is, it first came and says, "Here's an idea to create more affordable housing on the margin," and they said, "We can't accept this." And then it tried again, and then basically they it, it passed with most of those things intact. Yes, yeah, basically this was supposed to be decided just at the Planning and Transportation Committee, but they couldn't make a decision, so they kicked it up to Council, who, what was it, seven to two. Seven to two, yeah. Yeah, was, with what? Uh, Kuhn Coo and Du Bois. Kuhn and Du Bois, yeah. yeah or is it Kuhn Holman? Kuhn Holman, I think. I think you, oh, yeah, I think you could be yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I guess Du Bois was, was, was carried over. That's kind of surprising. Yeah, it is. Um, yeah, so I, I guess the general question is, have we solved affordable housing? Well, nothing's been built, Mark, so yeah. I don't think we can say we have. <laughs> yeah, so I, I guess the thing is, it's. I mean, is this a good thing? And I think it's hard to say this isn't a good thing, but it's kind of a weird thing that this is even something we're talking about. Exactly, because the quantities are so minuscule. Yeah. Like, we were speaking about another project. There's another project, the Valco Mall project. It's going to build 1,200 subsidized affordable units. Yeah. Palo Alto will never... I had Palo Alto, it would take them 20, 30 years to build that much under the... If we're just talking about the magnitudes in this plan, it's 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 a small number of hundreds of units per year, and that's if all of them are built. It's so small. I think right now there's a waiting list of something like 450, uh, 450 people it, yeah. for below market rate units in Palo Alto. Yeah. They have not built anything which has been basically this designation of 100% affordable in uh, 
in about a decade, and they don't have a huge catalog over hand. We were talking a few weeks ago with Paul Leone, uh, and you know he builds below market rate units through light tech uh, subsidies. And I mean, there aren't a ton of these in Palo Alto because this, and and just just in general, there is not a lot of capacity there. And this is, in theory, a way you're going to see more of them. Yeah. Well, and it's because the zoning doesn't allow it. If you're if you're talking about why isn't, like why isn't anything built in Palo Alto? It's because the zoning doesn't allow it. Because you can't build tall, you can't build tall next to single family homes. You need a certain amount of parking. Yeah. You need to preserve retail space that may have that may have been there originally. There's so many rules for developing in Palo Alto, and if you throw into the mix now, you have to subsidize the rents of everyone who lives here. No one builds it, and so so let's just say, why couldn't we solve? affordable housing in Palo Alto. Let's just say we want to solve it today. What do we do? And let's just say, for the sake of argument, we have a couple billion dollars at the ready, and we are willing to give it away to fix it. I mean... Do you want to see that money back? Let's just say, <clears throat> to start, let's say we do. We we have power, we have financial power, but we basically, we'd like to break even. Yeah, if you want to be responsible. Well, <laughs> so, I mean, you, in, because then you can go and do more things later. And let's just say, let's be honest, most people don't do altruistic things at a loss. I mean, it'd be great if yeah. more people did. But to be honest, it's better to see people at least break even doing stuff like this. Yes, because then at least the company won't go under. They can keep <laughs> paying their bills. Yeah. So if you wanted to build affordable housing in Palo Alto, you would have to find some land. Sure. It would be the first thing, I would imagine. And any parcel, you're talking about $2 million a pop. Likely. If it's yeah. zoned for something more than single-family homes, it's going to cost even more. If it's if it's near transit, it's going to cost it's more. It's going to cost yet more, exactly. You have to... First, you have to buy the land and get a bank to give you a huge loan. I mean, or, you you know, if, if you, let's say if you... Yeah, well, let's just, in let's, this thought experiment, you have cash, but... Well, let's, you, just, let's just say we have people who are willing to give us loans at 0% interest. So we have money, but yeah. we need to pay them back at the end. You need to buy the land yes. before you know if you can build the project you want on it. Because in order to make your money back, if your project costs, if it costs $2 million just to buy the land, forget about building the structure, and you want to build on it apartments that are subsidized, that you are picking up the cost of the rent for the people who live there, yeah, you are somehow going to have to get some of that money back. Either it's through, in the same project, building market rate uh, units or by asking the government for tax credits or other kinds of assistance. And basically you get it, you have that, um, the money comes in from there and it goes out in the form of subsidizing rents, buying land and building the building. If you don't get more in than you put out, you the money, the project doesn't work out and it can't be built or it certainly can't be run without so, running at a major loss. So if someone is expecting to use this, basically, this benefit of the 100% affordable housing overlay zone, are they also expecting to get subsidies in to run it, or are they hoping to make everything balance without it? In order to build a 100% affordable property, you would have to... <laughs> I mean, if, you're, if, you're a, if you're a private developer with a big portfolio, you may use another project entirely, yeah. or your cash flow from other projects to subsidize it. I could certainly see that happening, but... If you are a nonprofit developer, or if you're just, or if you're just some person, and like in this thought experiment, you yeah. need to ask the federal government probably for low-income housing tax credit assistance, and it, that's very difficult to come by, and its return isn't very much. I mean, let's say let's say we are actually to start as a baseline. Let's say we're building stuff and looking for market rents, and let's say we're doing it at cost. This means the cost of the land, the cost of basically pushing it through approval processes, which are yeah. not a considerable cost in itself. Exactly. Because this, and this is a whole big part of it. Not only do you have the expense of buying and building and subsidizing, but you have to deal with the uncertainty um, of getting your project planned. Yeah. For something like this, you would have to build a large project. These things work with economies of scale. If the land costs $2 million, you can amortize it over a large number of units, or at least you would for your project to make good economic sense. But in Palo Alto, the way that they use land, just like all around the Bay Area, is predominantly low density. And projects often cannot make good enough use of their land for these projects to pencil out. It would be the difference. Yeah. And in Palo Alto, you're not allowed to do it. That's why part. That's why this overlay, this affordable housing zoning overlay, is structured the way it is. It's saying in certain areas of the city, 
if you want to build a project that we like enough that meets these criteria that's subsidized for the people who live there you can build a little taller you can include a little bit less parking and you can be a little bit more dense on your lot yeah there's these little giveaways in floor area ratio height and parking like i said and that's about it so this is a way to help make things balance i guess it's a little bit of magic that you do to make things balance so you are going to be buying at the market rate considering that you're building you're you're buying land at the market rate of building market rate apartments at the normal zoning but because you get the bonus to build it for affordable uh and you get the state density bonus too that should apply yeah so so because you get all these bonuses but the local zoning the local zoning goes over the state den- overrules the state density bonus in some ways like height limits i need to yeah know more about how they how they interact uh, can you just can you just stack them up or is there some sort of exclusivity they stack in some ways i think they may stack with far but not with height yeah. i am not sure yeah so you buy land at the market rate for you know normal housing but you build affordable housing and you can build more of it so perhaps this balances out that you can build more of this affordable housing perhaps one can hope because like yeah. we said Palo Alto builds almost no affordable subsidized housing so one can hope that this would turn the balance in in the favor of building some yeah um, There's a number you're talking about, like, you know, what are savings? For example, if you have less parking, and this is a number saying, if you are paying for a certain unit, 16% of that, of the rent you're paying for it, is going into your parking spot they put on this on it, which is, yeah, I mean, building parking is a way of basically saying that the city is making sure it has infrastructure which is sustainable, saying we don't basically build infrastructure. If you want to build on, you supply your own storage. Yeah, and parking is an imposition by the city. Yeah, um, saying that our residents are don't want to have to worry about these new people coming in and taking up all of our parking spots. So they impose on the project the requirement to build their own parking spots. They can be underground or uh, in some kind of parking lot or or whatever it is, but it's going to be very very expensive. It's and, a it's a way of getting a public good for free. And exactly. all things we get we get affordable housing for free. We get parking for free in all these different ways. And the question is, is it really free? And I think the my answer is the very existence of the fact that you're getting them for free is evidence that something is really rotten at the core of how it's possible through some song and dance if you wave your fingers and people are willing to sell houses for less than it costs to build in certain ways. This is unsustainable and, two... It implies there's something really, really weird happening. Yeah, even the need for uh, when people say affordable housing, y- people can people can be meaning just housing that's cheaper. People can be meaning subsidized housing, and that's what we're talking about on this program: subsidized housing. Somebody else is paying for it. Yeah, and the city is trying to figure out a way that they can get that benefit without giving up any of the things that they want, like a city with plenty of parking or a city of of low density and low height. They're trying to figure out how best to do it. And some people are saying that some people are basically objecting to the fact that what is affordable here is based upon medium income, and median income here is already very, very generous. Is it 106,000 or 160,000? I couldn't couldn't quite parse it during the meeting. People were throwing around numbers. Interesting, because we were talking about it's. It was a, you know, talking about going up to 120 percent of area median income. So I don't know if the hundred. In any case, we're talking about triple digit incomes here. So we are talking about triple digit incomes, <laughs> but that is for a family. That sure. could be for a family of four. Yes. Like if if you're earning a hundred and six thousand dollars and you're trying to feed a family of four, you are not in good shape in Palo Alto or anywhere neighboring. Which is not to say that it is not worthy of subsidy to them but it is it is a way of saying if you are below this boy you are royally screwed yeah you're really screwed yeah (laughs) i mean there is i mean that's a question is there going to be room for someone to work as a busser in a restaurant in palo alto and live in palo alto and the kind of idea saying oh no of course not you know that's not what palo alto is going to be able to do and i'd say there's a certain concession here of saying that the best we can do is on the margin deliver affordable housing for people making already pretty good livings and everyone else is saying well dream on buddy well that's 
yeah, you look at why the situation is the way it is. Why is housing so expensive? Why do we need this subsidized housing that is complicated to build and difficult to fund and there's not much of it? It's because supply is constrained all around. If anyone could build at any height any number of units they wanted for people and charge whatever they want perhaps in, in any city they wanted, perhaps yeah. we, we wouldn't be facing these problems. Like This affordable housing plan is a relaxing for some specific projects of the incredibly strict restrictions that development has in Palo Alto. So let's talk RENA allocations for a moment. Uh, so these are these are numbers that I saw about basically how Palo Alto has been keeping up with its demands. This is regional housing needs allocation. Yeah, it's a way for, that the state government keeps track of what towns are building what housing in what income brackets yeah. and how much do they need to build and how much do they actually build. And this is kept track of for every town in every county around California. And and people say that this is kind of wacky. You get places like Atherton saying, hey, you need to build like a house a year or something insane. I mean, I, I'd like to know the actual numbers, but kind of if you are already exclusive and doing a crappy job, you can continue to do a crappy job. But it, it's worth saying that even if you could say Palo Alto has very low bars to clear, they have failed at that miserably. Yeah, uh, because the, the RENA, allocate RENA numbers are drawn up by people and by data front that is heavily influenced by the town that it's in. Palo Alto, the number that they end up for RENA is not, is not necessarily the number that's best for the region or that's best for the the working class or the people that need affordable housing. It's the number that Palo Alto wants, and that's the it's one the they number get. of bureaucrats popped out of a system, and the system yeah. is certainly not flawless, but it's at least a place to start. So are these actually per annum, or is this over some sort of, like, time region? You know, you have the numbers I saw on... I think it's for the re- this period of RENA, because RENA yeah. allocations... Because I've noticed they're cumulative. They don't stack. Yeah. They are... I think RENA is a period of, like, 10 years. Yeah, so that's why that's what I believe was the case. Yeah. So over the course of 10 years, Palo Alto was tasked with building moderate income, 120 units. Low income, 200 units. Very low income, 300 units. And again, those don't have to be subsidized. If the market could support low rent for people who had low incomes. Yeah. That there are places around California that meet I'm sure. these moderate and low I'm sure income f- requirements without subsidizing anything just because it's cheap to live there. This is not one of those places. Yeah, I think Fresno or Bakersfield probably do yeah. a much better job at doing this without subsidies. Yeah, they don't need to take a single federal dollar because if you can build a tall apartment building and get the economies of scale that you need to make your rents lower, you can do that without any subsidies at all. Yeah, maybe very low income, they might need some help, but s- still in general, yeah. in principle, they it's it's not the challenge we have here. So Palo Alto to do it, they have to do a lot of things like either inviting subsidies in or uh, basically allowing inclusionary zoning where a new market rate development has to give a certain amount to this to meet these things. And let's look at how they did. So for moderate income, 120 units, they've hit about 40. So they've hit about a third of what they needed for moderate units. Over the last 10 years. Over the last, yeah, this 10-year period or something. Low income, uh, they needed 200. They were 134 short of that, somewhere around, uh, you know, between 50 and something. So, yeah, I mean, they're so they're hitting about a quarter of those. <laughs> and then, they're building a handful a year, basically. Yes. And then finally, very low income, they were tasked with making 300 they have failed to make 264 of those 300. Very low income is, I think, what, 20% area median income? 30? That sounds right. I don't have it's it off the low. It's yeah. very low. So it's basically saying that you need to build housing that someone who makes 20 to 30 grand a year, yeah. roughly, I think that's those are the numbers, can afford, whether that be through subsidy or whether that be just through the fact that it's cheap. But subsidies are hard to get, and Palo Alto is not cheap to build in because of all these rules. So here's the question. One, is this the way that you fix... Is this the way that you fix affordable housing? Is one, you have bureaucrats say, please build 300 very low-income units, and then the city builds it. I'd say there's two failures here. One is, how do you know you need 300? I would say you need much, 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 much more. I would say so as well. But And the second thing is, Palo Alto failed to build uh, basically you know, 50 out of 300. They have failed to build something like 80-plus percent of all these units. So in other words, yeah, they have, even at the very moderate task put in their lap, they have just failed miserably at it. 
Well, there is the, the Rena as a system. There is no, there is nothing in place for enforcing Rena quotas. A city that fails to build what the state has advised it to build has it's just that it's an advisory. There's no actual mechanism for um, changing cities' laws or zoning to support this building or to mandating that they permit projects that would go towards fulfilling these quotas. There's absolutely nothing in place right now, so cities just do not do it. But starting this this year, we have seen something that has changed, and that is SB 35 that came to place last year. And let's sideline for a bit about Valco. Sure, yeah, let's do it. This well, is this we, is the big victory, I think. Yeah, a lot of people were talking about at Valco. Uh, I mean, uh, I spoke I spoke there a couple months ago, and you were there, and yeah. a lot of other people. Well, here's the background. Okay, yeah, yeah. background at Valco. It's a dead mall in Cupertino. I think there's it's an, an absolutely enormous mall. Yeah. It's cavernous. Right um, now it has a movie theater. It has a model train club. And like an ice cream shop. Like yeah. That's in out of a store, out of a out of a mall that used to be full of stores and full of people. It's enormous. It's many city blocks in size. Um, there's barely a few tenants holding on. It's hemorrhaging money. Yeah. And the city of Cupertino has been tied in a pretzel for half a decade at least five five years probably and just keep for in mind, what to do with it even though it's a dead mall it still holds on to incredibly valuable real estate exactly the mall it's falling apart it, it's 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 disintegrating actually like you can see the the buildings falling apart i mean i'm i mean i'll say offhand i am very very uh, i understand how a place like the dead mall is my childhood in outside of cincinnati Yes, you have to drive out quite a way to get that. It makes perfect sense that they have failed and that they fall into disarray. I'm actually really impressed that a place in the middle of such a dynamic region has failed. How is a dead mall possible in the middle <laughs> of of the South Bay? It's probably very expensive to maintain a mall. Um, there's a lot of competition from internet shopping. Yeah. They probably just could not attract the tenants. I mean, it really lets you know how the mall model is so dead, even yeah. when you have basically, because usually if you have valuable land, that tends to imply you can make money doing retail there. And this mall is holding on to incredibly valuable land and still failed miserably. Well, the mall, the mall model is a product of the suburbs where land is really, really cheap. Yeah. Um, if, 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 anything, if it's cheap, anything is economically viable. Like they could sell... They could they could sell almost nothing and pay their and the stores could pay their rent if the land was cheap enough. But the land has gotten incredibly expensive as and there's also been incredible competition yeah. uh, from the internet and from other retailers. I think it makes sense that the stores can no longer afford to stay in this mall, and therefore I say sure, let's do something better with it. And so yeah, so so in any way we, we have seen in the Schumpeterian sense we have seen creative failure. Valco has failed. Now, what does the region need? <laughs> the, key, the key is, do we need more offices or do we need more housing? And answer is, uh, the city has declared we need no more housing, and they were saying, we, let's keep all housing out of Alco, and the neighborhoods have said, let's fight growthzilla, let's, let's, yeah. keep, let's keep housing out of the Valco. Project. This has been a huge fight for the city of Cupertino. Over the last year or two, longer than that, longer than that, yeah. it's been really spicy and recently because the city worked on a on a plan for the Valco region that in, that did include housing, it included office, it included this and that, and a developer stepped forward and they're like, "We would like to build this, please let us do it." And they've been blocked at every turn by the city and by angry citizens until they were able to write a plan that makes use of the new SB 35 state law. So things look basically hopeless. So even though if you ask people, do we have enough office space? Most people in retail, people would say, yeah, I think we have, it's it's not a huge shortage. If you say, do we have enough housing? People say, oh God, no. They open this Apple campus. Suddenly all these ranch houses are selling for $3 million. They're selling off market for millions yeah, above that. This is a mile from the Apple spaceship, this site. <laughs> yes. The plan calls for thousands of units of housing. Yeah. And the city wanted to fight against it. The, basically, the S, SB, the way SB 35 works is it says if you build a project that is has a certain percentage of affordable subsidized units, yeah. then you get to bypass city approval. So it turns out that Sand Hill, that Sand Hill, the developer that is in charge of this Falco project, they, they, I believe they own. Do they own the land or they're scheduled to? I don't, I don't, I don't know offhand. They're the developer tasked with this project. They wrote up a plan that has. 2,400 units total of housing. 
a full half of which, 1,200, are subsidized affordable. And the balance of the project has retail and offices and rooftop parks and all this other stuff. And it pencils out because they are able... It pencils out because they are able to use the revenue from the market rate housing, the office, um, to pay for everything else. And they're able to provide a gigantic amount of affordable housing benefit um, with, I don't think, any kind of uh, federal government subsidy. So, so let's talk about why people were finding housing before it. One is, I think that if you're a resident, you treat new people in your neighborhood as a negative, which is part of the glory of living in the suburbs in the middle of an incredibly burgeoning region is that people fight growth at all tasks. And on, on top of it, cities fight housing because housing is bad for the city budget and building retail and office space is good for the city budget. Yeah, that's yeah, that that's economically that's exactly what's happening. There's n- there is no incentives for there is in fact negative incentives for for cities to build housing and no disincentives for them to for building office which brings in a lot of tax revenue. Yeah, so so in in general SB35 gives one short circuit way of saying, okay, you need to fit with zoning, but approval processes are really really tough. You can if you can save a bundle by short circuiting that if your city is not meeting its arena obligations, you can short circuit it and it sounds like the developer is saying, okay, we're taking door number B, door number B, we're taking door B, and, yeah, we're going to short-circuit approvals. We're going to save enough money on that. We're willing to build all this affordable, subsidized housing. Yeah, which that's is the 50%. That's what's in SB 35. It says if your project is 50% yeah. affordable, you get these certain protections and rights and um, ways to get approval. If it's a hundred percent, you get even more yeah. rights and perhaps uh, and, and perhaps even density and other concessions. So that's the plan they wrote up. Basically, um, they, they they took it to the city, saying, under California law, you have to approve this within 180 days. So let's negotiate. Now the city and Sandhill are going to negotiate, saying they they have this in their back pocket. This SB 35 plan that is unimpeachable. It's guaranteed to pass. Yeah. So they're saying, if you want to put your money where your mouth is, if you're saying, really, we do need housing, really, office isn't the right thing, really, this and that, if if you want something, you can they, they can negotiate and they can try to come up with something else. But Sandhill has this SB 35 plan that is unblockable, at least in the letter last, of the law. Last fall, the city was planning to basically change the zoning designation to make any kind of workaround impossible? Is that correct to say? Well, that's where they're trying to the meaning, and then basically, yeah. because their motives were loud, they actually explicitly said it, this was breaking different... Uh, <laughs> they, they basically were opening themselves up to a lawsuit if they did that. Yeah. The city of Cupertino tried to do some trickery the last around last Thanksgiving before, S- that, yeah. Yeah, before SB 35 came into effect. So they were going to change something <laughs> about the plan, about the zoning to try and pre and to try and head off any attempt for using SB 35 on this project and they failed because yeah. it was brought to the public's attention and it was publicized that the city was trying to do this and it made them look very bad and they ended up not doing it. Yeah, I mean just keep in mind if you don't go to your city council every week and follow this, there is so much Machiavellian stuff going on every week of all these trickery and, and suits and countersuits and all these. And even the heroes, they're like cable TV shadowy antiheroes. These are people who are morally ambiguous. You don't know if you want to root for them, but the people they're fighting are also awful in all sorts of ways. Oh, exactly. And this, this developer, the Sandhill Properties, they're a big company that builds They're not angels. They're not angels. They're 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 a business. They make money from building housing. And some people have a problem with that. We were discussing this. Yeah. What exactly we certainly people have this distaste when it comes to the idea of a of a developer or a big business making money off building housing. But but really like let let's talk about Yeah. The morals of this, like, is is it ethical? Is it immoral to build housing to make money from it? I mean, to like it or not, we are only willing to fund affordable housing and basically create housing in general through the pro- profit motive. Like it or not, we do not pay for public housing in this area, especially in the amount that we need to see. It's not exactly yeah. the, the mechanisms that do exist for. 
the government or private investment to subsidize housing is, is minuscule. It doesn't build very much. And as we talked about in the past week, it's basically paid for by cutting out of corporate you know, profits. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, so it's in in general saying, you know, this this strikes me as a bit dirty. Let's take let's stay away from this profit thing. The entire system is so heavily hooked up to the profit motive. It's I think it's it's very reasonable for people to say we should do things in different ways. We should actually fund public housing and build it. But you have to realize that if you want to do that, you need to reform 20 different gigantic systems and it's going to be a lot of work and are you willing to basically sit down and do nothing until the revolution happens? Yeah. Plenty of places do not have housing crises. A lot of them have public housing programs that work. Yeah. Like Mark said, that you would need to change so, so much about how cities use land, how they raise funds, what powers they have. Um, you need to change offhand Land has to be cheap, which, I mean, this show is largely about a way that we should, you know, I I don't really believe land should be an investment at all. Make land cheap again. Yes, exactly. I mean, I think land should absolutely be, one, uh, taken away from being an investment vehicle, and two, should be a way to fund our cities. And I think that is common sense. I think most people, if they think of it for a few minutes, would actually realize that actually increasing the land, the the tax burden on land actually makes a whole lot of sense for these reasons. But you know, I it's not going to happen this year. It's not going to happen next year. Because yeah. <laughs> if, if this is the struggle, is this if yeah. this is what we want to move towards? Yeah, cheapening land, um, expanding public housing, it's a increasing great density. Goal. It's an incredible long term goal. But you have the entire status quo in opposition to you right now. Yeah, every little landholder, every little wealthy landholder who has an acre, a half acre, a quarter acre, all around the Bay Area and all around, well, the entire state depends on depends on the scope of this, but let's talk about the Bay Area. There's millions and millions of people who would lose a lot of money if you brought this plan into effect, and they would oppose it. Yes, I mean, that is that is historically what has happened. You, uh, I mean, you, you talk about, you know, big money and small money. You talk about the small money are people who own houses worth $3 million. Small change. Everybody's you know, got small money, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and big money are, you know, people who own incredible amounts of land. And if you talk about basically, I am, you know, I tend to think making money off of land speculation is deeply immoral. Developers, who are the people who build land, are largely making money off of land speculation. So they yeah. do they do a lot of things which I think are good. I think we need to build more, and they do a lot of things which I think are really, really bad. Uh, yeah, but when and why? And they're the only ones who seem to be able to get anything built. But why is that? I think it's because we have this incredibly high barrier to entry. If you make it yeah. really expensive to build, only people who have a ton of money and are going to want to make it back will be able to build anything. Talk about developer uh, right here at Stanford. You walk around, and one out of every three buildings is named Ariaga, known for John Ariaga. Uh, John Ariaga, back in the 1950s, was not a particularly rich guy, but he basically had the vision of saying, "What I'm going to do is buy up all the orchards in the peninsula, and with this portfolio of land, I will be able to basically develop, build office parks when things become more." Uh, you know, more more demand for office parks, and I will make a lot of money. And he made billions and billions of dollars doing it. And you don't make billions of dollars through being a good carpenter. You don't make good. You make billions of being a good construction worker, but you do make good. You do make billions by buying land low and selling high. And I think I'm, I'm nothing is building, but that's not an incredibly ethical way or sustainable way to make money because basically. It doesn't come from nowhere. It's stuff that we basically involuntarily pay as a tax on the cost of real estate. Well, and I think I think construction is a public benefit. But if you throw in all these these restrictions, this speculation, um, and the yeah the the restriction of land use and the ability of these companies to charge whatever they want, et cetera, et cetera, you start to lose this public good. I think if all that land stayed orchards that. I mean, we, we'd have more fruit trees, but I don't think that we would enjoy the... There, there's more public benefit in offices than there is in fruit trees, and that's unfortunate, but that's why there's no more fruit trees around. I mean, I've always said, like, you talk about, you know, the, the orchards, you talk about Marin County. People say, oh, let's not develop Marin County. Uh, let's keep it nice and pristine. I'd say 
personally saying I am more than willing to turn Marine, uh, Marin County into a nature preserve, kick everyone out, but I, I'm very against people saying, I want it to be very low density and I should live here. <laughs> yeah, and continue to live there for the low, low prices that they so enjoy. Exactly. Because <laughs> it's basically, I want to live in pristine nature near attractions and jobs and not pay for it. Yeah. That's the dream. And that's, because, what, that's yeah. what, and that's what so many people get is they're near things, they don't pay for it, and they basically are able to keep low density around them. So yeah, they, and they, they pay low property taxes. Yeah, exactly. Because the Bay Area that we live in, the millions and millions of homes that are here, the millions and millions of square feet of office space and public transit and every other great thing was built mostly in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and 70s, yeah. before all these incredibly tight restrictions were placed on who can, be, on who can build what where. Well, you look at We've been underbuilding since then, <laughs> and the people who had homes back then are reaping all of the benefits. The people who just want to come in and enjoy, and enjoy a, a reasonably successful life and career are unable to because of these restrictions. Talking about restrictions, in the last two weeks, there was another talk in Paul City Council about uh, Eichler home overlays. So, yes. So back in the, um, in the 50s, uh, Joseph Eichler, I believe I have his first name correct, uh, he, he was a developer who wanted to basically, he really cared about making affordable housing that was not segregated and was affordable all income levels. So he, at the time, the land was actually pretty cheap. So really, the main thing is, do you have the workflows possible to build things? He built a lot of tract housing that was well-built and people liked. and it yeah, was a f- In Palo Alto, yeah. Single-family homes. Yeah, throughout the region. That and, they were small, they were sensible, yeah. they did not have enormous amounts, they didn't take up enormous amounts of land, they used simple building materials. And they solved a task at the time, which is basically given cheap land, and the need for basically housing people, how can we do this in a way that we can sell it for a cheap price? And it's so funny that now, 60 years later, we are now preserving the low density around these Eichlers and treating them as art pieces and selling them for millions and millions. Yeah, and saying that not only can you... Not only can you not knock down this historic building, but you can't build anything next to it. If there was a vacant lot next to it, you couldn't build... Uh, a house there that was out of character, that was too tall, that was too this, that was too that. So this this entire successful public project of building cheap, sensible housing for lots of people is being turned right back around by the people who reap the benefits and saying that this neighborhood, this land is closed. It's full. It's done. Um, and that's being done all really all around the Bay Area. It's it's, Joseph, it's, it's yeah. blatant and gross around the Eichler homes, but yeah. this kind of restriction is, this is fundamentally what it is. It's people who are enjoying all the benefits of low-density living and of owning a plot of expensive land and saying that they get to do whatever they want with it and can flagrantly uh, continue this, this, this public crisis that we have in housing. So, I mean, you talk about all these different policies, everything from these affordable subsidies, these density bonuses, affordable housing. You talk about the bonuses through SB 35 to subvert, you know, the approval processes. But in general, the overall idea is what do we want? Do we want people to build the right amount of affordable housing and sell it for affordable prices, or do we not want those things? And it seems very clear that our cities don't really care about whether they actually sell affordable housing for the right amount of money, who votes for them, who determines their policy. It is, by and large, homeowners who their main task is, one, preserving quality of life for residents, and two is, I mean, just to be blunt, protecting their property values. Yeah. Yeah. That's the reason that... That's part of the. That's the reason that zoning even. That's the reason that zoning exists. Yeah. Keeping neighborhoods low density, keeping other uses, bars and factories out of the nice quiet neighborhoods, so that the home values stay high, and so that the supply stays limited. There was a survey, and this was this was being uh, name checked on um, basically all residents of Palo Alto, and they asked them different questions: How well are they serving basically residents' needs? How well are they serving schools? They asked them, and they said, how, how much did they say, checkmark, excellent or good? Uh, affordable housing being built in Palo Alto, 6% thought they are doing excellent or good. Yeah. Cost of living in Palo Alto, 8% thought excellent or good. So the question is, okay, they have failed miserably at doing these things. They clearly are not doing a good job at this. Everyone agrees. 
why aren't these people being run out of town on rails? Because really, who like they already have a home. They don't care. Most residents yeah. don't care if they're doing these things. This system is working as intended for yeah. the people that made it this way. Yes. It really is. Um, and what are they talking about next week? They're talking about airplane noise in Palo Alto because residents are complaining too much because the worry that living near an airport may actually cause you to hear airplanes is considered an outrage that we have to fix, yes. whereas the fact that we are not building affordable housing and the median home price is $2.7 yeah. million and the line for getting a below market rate unit is 450 people, these that's worth ignoring. But airplane noise... I'm going to be out and, and, and having signs and on a rampage. Oh, it's worth saying that the airplane noise topic was um, this. The council was discussing it in a closed session before this affordable housing thing on Monday, and it ran over and pushed out the affordable housing discussion by 45 minutes. So you can see where the city's <laughs> priorities lie. That's funny. Yeah, I mean, and yeah, and so again, this is another um, benefit that they are enjoying. They live in an area that is so economically powerful yeah. that airplanes are flying in from all corners of the world at all hours of the day. The FAA has to change flight patterns to accommodate the volume of people who want to come here and start businesses and spend money. And the people who have to live under the airplanes are saying, I don't want to look at that. I don't want to see it. I don't want to hear it. So I guess I, there's, there is a number of moral outrages. People saying that developers are moral outrage. I mean, I'd say... I think that it's a gray system where they're doing something we need, but also doing it in perhaps finding unsavory ways to benefit from it, especially perhaps the people who do it in the most gross way make the most money. I'm not, you know, yeah. I, don't, I don't really know which ones are evil, but it sounds like if we were basically going out with credit lines to build affordable housing, if we had pure motives, we would still have a, a tough road to have, whereas the people who already have a land portfolio have been land banking for years they're going to have smooth sailing. Well, and it, there's, I think there's this, there's this straw man idea of the evil developer in people's mind, and there's a lot of aspects to the evil developer, this imaginary evil developer. That I need to, I should try and find out where these things came from, because these, these, there are a bunch of cliches that are trotted out yeah. at city council meetings, and like this is, I don't think there are. This may be a combination of real incidents that happened or imaginary ones or ones that happened around the country at different times to give people this idea of this boogeyman that they can that they can rail against. Because the evil developer, they build and they promise that they'll deliver certain kinds of community benefits and then they do not do them, even though most developers sign contracts to that they are accountable for building what they say that they're going to build. I mean, at the very least, there's a spectrum. You talk about Joseph Eichler, back when he was not land banking and land was cheap and he was building non-segregated affordable housing, he was almost a saint. He built, yeah. he built beautiful, nice houses, and that's a, that's a damn good kind of developer. Yeah, while the Palo Alto City Council themselves were focusing on continuing segregation. If you talk about someone like Robert Moses who was, you know, within the city department helping lead development projects and basically trying to destroy, uh, you know, uh, underprivileged minority communities in the process, there was a lot of things that, uh, I mean, I think that's a, that's a lot of the images that people have when people say developers have a bad name. It's people who just want to have... There's, what, a, lot, there's a lot of dimensions here. Yes, and I think if you talk about in general, I think part of the reason that the evil developer meme has a lot of legs is the fact that most people who live in a suburb say, my way of life is moral. I know it's good because I feel it, it's good. If it changes and whoever makes it change, they are by definition ruining a good thing, they are bad. Yeah. And I think the fact that you think any developer is basically making a quaint community worse by building I think the fact that it privileges this kind of petite landowner class is absolutely consistent with the fact that that has such legs in being an evil thing that people that people love to to rail against. People love consistency. People hate change. And I think if and you could say there is nothing evil about change when it's necessary. And I think when houses cost $3 million, change is necessary. Not to the people who own those homes. They Ex would love for nothing exactly. to change. Exactly. And, and that this is the fundamental problem. And we both, I think we both shared this sentiment when we were walking out of this meeting, like, gosh, like we're doing all this effort. We're staying here for hours and hours just so that Palo Alto can go from building 20 to 
fifty affordable. Yeah. Like just yeah. so they can go from twenty to go to fifty affordable housing units a year. Like yeah. so few people are being helped. Whereas the laws that enable this kind of gross behavior, this self interested, blind and self dead this this behavior that lets this housing crisis continue. Laws could be changed in county or city or state levels, yeah. mo- mostly state levels, to completely wipe out this kind of practice. Like, Every- why are we wasting all our time here when you could be helping many more people by wiping out these practices entirely, not fighting people on the turf that they've made, on this terrain that they've made with these laws that serve them? Everything is basically predictable from the economics that people would feel the way they do, because to a first approximation, people are acting in their own private interests. I mean, you, you say people are not just rational automatons, but every way people are acting is is, is very easy to see how this came to pass. Yeah. And if you want to fix it, you're basically working upstream, because you're working yeah. against everyone's private interests. And you're working within this framework that the homeowner class has spent 60 years building. Yes, and... And I think that you talk about what are ways forward. I think you talk about the ways forward would, one, be at the state level, the state will, in fact, create more teeth and more requirements and basically say, Palo Alto, your task is to build 500 affordable housing units this month. <laughs> and then they yeah. do. And if they don't, then they are basically you know sent to the gulags. Well, I mean... If, <laughs> yeah, I, I would... I mean, I... We would not need public housing if all of the cities around the Bay Area are would be building enough would would be building what they need. But there has to be some kind of consequence for continuing yeah. to have bad practices, and there should be laws in place to to measure and dole out those those enforcements. We hate development and change in proportion to how much it hurts people that we align with. So I think if you talk about historically. If you talked about Robert Moses wiping out black communities to create public projects or, you know, you know all sorts of infrastructure Highways, projects. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I think people would say, oh, I'm a middle class white person. You know, I don't mind this. <laughs> I think if you are a disadvantaged person in that community that was affected, you didn't like it quite a bit. If you were Joseph Eichler building on basically orchards, I'm not an orange. I don't care if I'm if I'm dug yeah, out of the ground. Oranges can't vote. Exactly. And I, the same thing here. Poor people who can't afford to live here can't vote. <laughs> so well, exactly. Yeah. And and the laws do not afford the laws and political realities don't. Oh, didn't afford the people that Robert Moses displaced or that redevelopment displaced in San Francisco in the 60s and 70s. They did not have a lot of political power and they had no recourse in the laws to stop this from happening or to stop new building from occurring. But homeowners have lots of political representation and they have made and changed laws to prevent any change from happening. They have they have taken it into their own hands to to stop any kind of change from happening in their neighborhoods, and that's happened all around the Bay Area, and that's what we're facing. So what is the goal of government? Is basically to basically say, even if you have private interests at hand, you need to basically share the burden of necessary change equally to make sure that we, one, aren't stuck in a hell world stasis, which is kind of the holding pattern right now. Yeah, we're in kind of this horrible purgatory. <laughs> like, I'm not... There's uh, so many possible paths. So there could be pure public housing. Yeah. The government could eminent domain land and build things there. Or the government could in could say that these restrictions, these, lux- these luxurious restrictions like height limits and neighborhood character limits that cities have been enjoying that are keeping construction out yeah. are now to be removed. And that's the thing. You can argue this. Now, if you, if you frame it that way, not about the city taking land with eminent domain, but about the government removing restrictions, now you can. this is a much more palatable political argument you can make to people across the spectrum. I think in the, like right here in this region, if you talk about the current landscape, how do you make it so demand makes it so Palo Alto holds its share before East Palo Alto is every poor person evicted? And the question is, if you don't do anything to change the regulations that stop change from happening, it's going to happen nowhere in this politically powerful region. It's going to happen everywhere in East Palo Alto, and every single person who's poor is going to leave town before your retiree in Palo Alto has a $3 million house. Yeah, exactly. going to be disadvantaged at all. Yeah, exactly. And, it's why the mission has two BART stations and a ton of apartment buildings, and North Beach or Cow Hollow has, you know— 
cute little quiet little neighborhoods yeah. and no public transit to speak of. And really the task in the big scale is we need to basically coordinate change in a way that is fair for everybody and not just in a way of privileging the desire yeah. not to change in the most powerful and the the lack of power to resist it in the least powerful. Yeah, and I trust I I can say that I trust the state of California and I trust well-meaning private interests and even I trust the cities if given the proper framework and the proper guidance to get this done. They have not been getting it done thus far because the wrong people have the power and the wrong rules are in place, but I think it's just a matter of changing the rules yeah. and good and well-meaning private entities and public entities can work together to solve this problem. I don't think it would really be that hard. I trust them more than I trust the cities. I trust yeah. I trust Sacramento more than I trust Palo Alto. I still don't trust it, and I still feel that you're still going to have the Beverly Hills, the Palo Altos, the Athertons are still going to carve out their own exemptions. And I feel unless you create sustainable, decentralized kind of working systems of how you can make sure that everything is equally shared, I'd say one of the big things you do is basically blow up zoning everywhere. I think absolutely, ex- I, I really believe so. Exclusionary zoning, by definition, helps the powerful at the, at the hurt of the powerless. Yeah. I think there is, and it's awful for the economy. Yes, I mean it's been around a hundred years. It is something that's been spun down in every state, mostly because it helps keep class segregation working. And I think that. Uh, SBA 27 works to take away some parts of it, and people say it doesn't go far enough. I think they're absolutely correct. I think we should get rid of every amount of state zoning power. Uh, basically, cities should have no ability to resist density. Well, and you're seeing that mayors, you're seeing that mayors and city councils all around California are unilaterally opposed to SBA 27 for this reason. Yeah, I'm not surprised, and I know I, I hope that SBA 27 passes, but I also hope that in its that um that even if the opposition is successful, that more legislation takes its place. I would like to I'd like to hear Tracy City Council see what they feel about it, because yeah. they're the people who either it's good because it's increasing property values or it's bad because it's changing their city. Well, I don't most, know. Most cities around California, they have space to spare. They don't have um, huge pressing problems with housing. Yeah. SBA 27 would not affect those cities. Yeah. It would affect cities that are underbuilding that have land that is incredibly expensive, that have housing crises, that is what removing these restrictions yeah. would help. It's not No one is going to build 20-story apartment buildings in Eureka yeah. or Modesto. No one's going to do it because it's not needed. They're, they don't have the problems that we have. And this law, I think, this law I think would be good because it wouldn't it wouldn't hurt these these places. It would only hurt um, it would only target where there is this problem that needs to be solved. And I mean, so I would say that's big idea one is blow up zoning everywhere, which I mean, it is not. It's like we're talking about ice right now. It's like abolish ice. It's like, are you serious? This person's so crazy. When about I mean, ice has been around for less than twenty years, and yeah. now it's treated as this big thing. But the same token being, let's abolish zoning. Zoning's been around for a hundred years. In the big scale of things, it's not that sacred. It's it, not. Yeah, and there's parts of. Building regu- of of land use regulation that are not zoning. The fire code and the earthquake code and the health code. Nuisance laws. Nuisance are not part of zoning. Yeah. We shouldn't build chemical plants next to old folks' homes. No one is Con- thinking that. Congestion prices, if your streets yeah. are too crowded. There's all sorts of ways to do what you want to do with zoning that don't necessitate class segregation. Exactly. And that don't necessitate reckless and dangerous building. Yeah. Um, Because right now we have all this incredibly careful zoning and all this environmentalism, but right now where all the building is being done on sensitive wetlands that are a terrible place to build for earthquake reasons that are causing terrible congestion because everyone has to cross the highway, they're on, yeah, they're where all these endangered species are. Because that's the land that's left for Google. And, and because the, endangered, Alto and the endangered species are less likely to show up as city council to complain than the people of Palo Alto. Yeah, exactly. The, our land is being used so, so poorly. Yeah. And it's to such incredible economic detriment, even of the people who do own this land. Their house might be three mil- their land might be worth $3 million now because of this overinflated condition. But if we were part of a well functioning city and the demand for, we could support a lot of citizens, but the demand was still there. 
you could sell that land for $5 million to build an apartment building, $10 yeah. million. There's no ceiling yeah. on like a, like a plot of land in New York City, the size of a Palo Alto on Manhattan, the size of a Palo Alto plot. Yeah. It'd be worth 20, 30, 100 times as much. Just keep in mind, every city you think of as beautiful was done not because of nice zoning laws. It, yes. was, it was done because of the fact that we basically didn't make ineffective rules on what shouldn't exist. We actually just let things happen. I'd say that yeah. it's not like chaos is probably going to be the best, but some amount of chaos without the extreme yeah. stasis of zoning laws yeah. is, is the only way forward. All those beautiful Eichlers were built without zoning. All the Victorian houses in San Francisco were built without zoning. All the bungalows in Berkeley, all the brownstones in Brooklyn were built without zoning. The dense cities of, of Europe. Yeah. You know, it's like if you find something yeah. that's beautiful in any urban design thing, chances are it won't comply with zoning. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, too, is also I feel that any non-complying old building, because if you talk about something like Manhattan, I think something like 60%, 70% of the buildings are non-compliant with current zoning laws. Yeah, you couldn't build them today. In my mind, if that's true, you should either take down the zoning laws or take down the building. Yeah. <laughs> it's a fugitive building. It's, you shouldn't be able to have it stay up. I think it's really weird to say illegal starting today. Um, but to put, to put... Well, it's precisely that yeah. standard that is what I find so distasteful about this that... I mean, I bet a lot of the people in Palo Alto who own expensive homes, who expanded the garage, who put on additions, who yeah. widened the driveway, you know, on the sly back in the 70s and couldn't do it today. They're enjoying the benefits. But the, the, some guy came to the city council meeting complaining that some neighbor, like, built a garage in front of his house and, like, made a yeah. big deal about how it was a loophole <laughs> and this should be prosecuted by the city council. Like, this is the, these are the minutiae, these are the... The, this is the depth of what people are willing to go to to try and um, preserve the value of their homes and make sure that yeah. no one else can, you know, make out better than they did. This the, is so petty and the, so greedy. The golden rule, do unto others as you have them do unto you. These people came in when houses were affordable. They got houses. They did what they wanted to. They yeah, they got their tech job back in the 60s and 70s. And now they want to basically pull up the bridge and say no one else can have affordable housing. Yeah, their their alternative, what they would want to solve the housing crisis to, is to say all the tech companies can leave. That that yeah. that a tax of a hundred percent should be passed on all tech companies. There are people who really believe this. Yeah, which I would say at least they are willing to consider something that will create pain, as opposed to the people who feel we don't need to have any losers. We don't need to have change that feels any pain whatsoever. We just can fix it through this magic policy that's going to basically make everything happen with no pain points whatsoever. Change is going to make people upset. And people need to fight for change without apology for the fact that change is yeah. necessary. Yeah, I need. I that's why I I really strongly believe in what the Yimbis have to say yeah. in this urbanist <laughs> philosophy that they have because I think we really do need to work and struggle to get out of the the the, the valley, the horrible stagnant valley that we're in right now. I think we have to do a lot of work to get out of it. It's, and it's, I think it's, it's worth it. It's progressive on its face, saying that we need to basically build even though it's going to be hard to build and i think people would say some people don't think enough about building equitably to make sure we don't just build east palto when you build palto too oh, yeah. and i think but i think most people recognize Palo Alto are the people you point the fingers at for saying boy you are the worst slime on the planet for not doing the right thing uh, yeah, I want to make apartment buildings there and apartment buildings everywhere for yes. rich people, poor people, yeah, so that we can all live like human beings again instead of yeah. Oh, I, I, and, if I didn't have to go to another city council <laughs> meeting, I'd be happy. Yeah. Uh, so, and to talk about basically big, big picture, I occasionally put a bullet, you know, put a bullet point on it. Uh, you know, land value tax is, I think, the huge galaxy brain idea that's not going to, you know, be possible in the short or medium term. But it's the idea that, in general, it doesn't make a lot of sense to make money through owning land. It doesn't make sense to make profit or even to build equity that way. We could live in a world in which people actually invest in productive keys and, I mean, in where people invest in productive things and basically don't spend their lives trying to buy a chunk of land if they don't own it, which is kind of nutty. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, there's so much good that, be, that could be coming from this system that we live in. It doesn't have to be broken in all these ways. We don't have to constantly be rocking from one recession to uh, a horrible um, supply constraint to this and that. 
We don't have to be overtaxed in all these horrible ways and undertaxed in all these ways. We don't have to be constantly cutting benefits. We don't have to be doing all this. We don't have to be suffering in this way. I think there's ways we could structure our laws and economy so that we could work better as a country and so that everyone could enjoy the benefits again. We, we got like our arms stuck in a vending machine and we just need yeah. to let go and just... Yeah, just... we need to let go of the Snickers bar <laughs> Yeah, I so mean... we can go home and have a chicken dinner. Yeah, so I mean, so we, we, we've been talking for the last hour. Uh, we started talking about the Palo Alto Affordable Housing Overlay uh, Program... What's it, it's, uh, yeah, yeah, Affordable <laughs> Housing Zoning Overlay. Yeah, yeah exactly. Bonus. Proposal. Yeah, <laughs> which was a fun... Uh, five or six hours last Monday, talking about it here, talked a little bit about Falco, talked about bigger ideas as well. Uh, joined again by Max Kapczynski of Paul to Forward. Uh, it's, it's been fun to talk about this. Well, and I'm sure there's more fun fights to be talked about in the Bay Area. Yeah, I'm sure. And I'll see you next time if we can try to get in some of these as a guest, one of these people we've been talking to. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a joy. Uh, this has been a presentation of KZSU Stanford. You can listen to past episodes at seethecat.org.